Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today for our 100th episode, I've caught Professor Mark Ritson. Mark has spent 25 years working as a marketing professor, has been a columnist at Marketing Week for over a decade, is a world-class speaker and has built, presented and demolished marketing plans, not to mention self-proclaimed gurus, as a consultant for some of the world's biggest brands. Through his mini-MBA courses in marketing and brand management, he's trained nearly 30,000 marketers across 60 countries, including 83.7% of GASP. In fact, we've sent so many of the team through Mark's marvellous minis and we bang on about how ace they are so much that some have started to ask if Mark is part of the agency. The answer, alas, is no. You can pay me, though. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I can. (laughs) When he's not drinking wine in his underpants, and presumably sometimes when he is, Mark says some very smart things, such as... Revel in the absolute inanity of your brand and your category, because when you truly grasp the pointlessness of brands and achieve the humility of a great marketer, you are ready to build a brand properly. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Charles. Lovely to be here. It's a rare one because I actually listen to your podcast. I go on a lot of podcasts that I've never heard of before and since. But this is one I actually know about. I'm quite nervous because I'm I'm aware of your oeuvre. Right, seven quick fire. Dogs or dingoes? Well, I have a half dingo, half dogs. That's an unfair question. So in this one question, I'm going to say both. Melbourne or Minnesota? Ooh, uh, Minnesota, I have to say. Melbourne's a place I've lived in for four or five years. I had a great time there, but the minute I left, I have not missed it at all. Whereas Minnesota, I do miss occasionally. Ryan Warman's not going to be happy. Yeah, he's not going to be happy. Colin Firth or Marina Hyde? Colin Firth. I have a lot of time for Colin Firth. Be liked or be distinct? Oh yeah, you've got to go distinct, because if you follow the research, being distinct leads to salience, which leads to being liked. Jim Morton or Carol Spencer? Oh, that's a, that's a really, really, <laughs> it's a, it a real niche one. I would always go with Jim. My, I always sign with Jim. Can I tell you a story? I know it's quick. No, 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 no. So for, for non-mini-NBA listeners... When we do the mini-MBA marketing, you have to create a marketing plan for a fictional marketing organization. And we tweak it each time, but it's always about this photocopier company run by this fictional guy called Jim Morton, who's your classic useless sales-driven boss. And uh, I created a LinkedIn persona for him, which is still active, and, and he contacts all the students on the class, and they only realize halfway through that he's not real, um, and, and then it gets out of hand. But... Um, in one famous instance, I got a call from one of my team in London saying, oh, someone's complained about someone else on the course. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. Who is it? And they said, Jim Morton. And I'm like, well, that's worrying on a couple of levels because first, he doesn't exist. And second, I, I'm in charge. I, I, I tweet on behalf of Jim Morton. So I, what have we done? And there's a student who quite innocently had said, do you guys have 
subtitles on, on for some of the lecture slides. And, and I said, I got Jim Morton being me. I, I was being Jim Morton saying, I don't, but I don't mind ringing you up every day and I'll, I'll speak to you over the phone what, what the slides are all saying. You know what I mean? And it was, it was meant to be he was like an 80s kind of out-of-touch guy, but it came across what I realised later as really quite predatory. So I had to then send an email to the class saying I, I had... Uh, I talked to Jim Morton, me, yeah. and, and warned him about his behaviour. It was the most surreal sort of hour of my life. Anyway, it's a very long story, but Jim Morton has my sympathy. So you'd use Jim to catfish a student? Yes. Two more. Favourite field? Peter or Professor Karen Nelson? Oh, no, Peter. I have a lot of time for Karen, but Peter's a legend in my opinion. I thought you were ask me about two different fields, as in a physical location with grass. I was going to be like, oh, geez, hang on. I was going to ask you about the Roses one as well, the Lancasters of the Yorks, but I didn't. Oh, very much. So Cumbria and I hate both of them equally. <laughs> right, last quick fire. Max Moon or Elon Musk? Again, a good in-joke. I would definitely go with Max. There's more sensitivity there, more table tennis, more bisexuality. <laughs> All things, as far as I know, that Elon Musk doesn't have. Are they not the same person? So Max Moon is a is a basically an amalgam of all the crazy fucking founders I've ever worked on. Oh, okay. There's a bit of Verve Clico, Donna Karen, Dom Perignon, you know, uh, Screw Screw Turner from Flight Center. They're all in there. Do you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. it was basically a composite founder that you had to work out. We always start on the episode by asking our guests what was their first ever job and what was their first proper job. We know where you're at now, but we don't know much about early Mark. Well, I mean, my first ever job, I used to do the trolleys at uh, Whitehaven Safeway. That was what I did throughout my school days. Quite a lot of work, actually. Um, but my first real job was selling cash machines for NCR in London on Marlebone Road. So I was a marketing assistant for NCR in about 1990. And they were, um, at the time, were attempting to become kind of the tech dominating firm, leveraging out of ATMs and into all kinds of the technology which they singularly failed to achieve. But for me, it was a salutary experience to be in London working for a company that was really, really shithouse at most things and where marketing had absolutely no value at all to, to learn what I did not want to do. It's very expensive. You know, I was there for about a year, but it taught me what I didn't want to do, which was that, basically. It propelled me into doing something to be more interesting and to seek out something that didn't... Im- I could have spent 20 years in that kind of job before I realised I hated it. And I realised in a year, I'll never... The only way I can make this year worthwhile is realising I shall never do it again. Yeah. So that's what I did. And what was your first proper job? Uh, I mean, really then, because then I, I was submerged in back into, into um, academia. So I guess my first real job that I had a career plan was being an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. I mean, that was where I was for five years. After a long time of doing my my research, my PhD, I finally got a salary and a little car and a house and started teaching marketing. No consulting. It was very academic. I was useless. I was academic. You know, everything I hate now. And it was only coming to London Business School. So London Business School was a weird school at the time. This is 20 odd years ago. They were based in London, but they would never hire a British marketing academic because they're all useless. Still true? Uh, definitely true. Um, they, but they were looking for Europeans that were American quality that they could get back, and I was on their list. So they headhunted me out of Minnesota, and I, I went happily back. And there, that was different. LBS at the time was extremely corporate. So you really did get exposure at that point to a lot of big companies 
and that started my journey into consulting and you know essentially realizing that I thought you could balance the two. You could be a marketing professor and you could do a lot of marketing work. And the two fed each other beautifully because you could teach what you were doing. And no one else had that point of view. And that's why academia is fucked in marketing. Yeah. Everyone else was like, no, you can't do too much of that. You have to focus on whatever the fuck we're doing over here. Right? Yeah. And my point, well, my dad, who's here actually, made that point to me years ago. How come if you're a professor of surgery, you have to do surgery, but none of them guys you work with ever do any marketing? And, and I couldn't answer his question. Yeah, it's a good point. It, it, in fact, it was one of the quick files I crossed out was professor or marketer. Because in my <laughs> experience, the latter are normally terrible because none of them are the former. That's you right. Like you say, you don't get that mix. And, and in fact, Beth, who you've been liaising with to set up today, yes. she, I think she told us in her first week of GASP that she was taught Simon Sinek's circle of piss or whatever it is <laughs> three times by three separate tutors doing her very, a genuinely decent degree. Which was alarming, and, and there is no I, there is no decent degree in marketing. No, I think that's yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, that's no, a and, and look. I don't want to have a personal dig at any British marketing academic. All I would say is, um, you cannot teach marketing if you're not doing it. The I mean, it's a big challenge for me, right? The problem with mini MBA, if there is one, is it's got so big and it's so much work that I don't do consulting anymore. And I know that means my half-life of teaching is, is ticking now, because I don't want to be one of those guys. I do it more and more now. When I'm talking to my students, I use examples of mini-MBA, because that's all I do. I mean, I don't go off three days a week working now, and that uh, is a great shame. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to- completely flip then, that ratio of, of teaching? I, I, have no, I have no ratio. I mean, mini-MBA oh. has become so big you know, it's a multi, multi-million dollar business and it's a full-time, you know, I've got, right now I've got uh, 3,000 students, right? And it, you know, it isn't a big team. It's me doing all the teaching and I love it. Don't get me wrong. And it's brilliant. But what it has done is knocked me out of doing what I used to do, which is teach a little bit, but do an awful lot of consulting. But I'm in my fifties. I can't keep getting on planes, traveling yeah. the world. So I have to acknowledge that, but it means that my teaching quality is going to go down soon because I'm too far away from the business. It's become your AirPods business, hasn't it? It has. So That's exactly what it is. And it's a weird moment where you're like, oh, I wanted a nice little you know, side hustle in my 50s to make a bit of dough and have a bit of fun. It's turned into a proper job, <laughs> exactly when I didn't want it. You know, there's there's yeah. CEOs involved and re revenue reports and shit. I, I had a meeting yesterday in Waterloo about it. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, I, we, did a, we did a planning meeting where... I, was, I found myself with a whiteboard right in the year 2035 on the board. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? 2035. So then rewinding it all the way back, how, how did you ever even get into marketing? Because I've, so as I say, you're our 100th guest. Very few people I've spoken to who have trodden all sorts of paths were perverted enough to know they wanted to get into yeah. advertising, let alone marketing. So how, how does that happen? So it's a question I can't answer because it's so far back. I wanted to do marketing, at least when I was in, I didn't know it was specifically called marketing, I guess, in high school, but I went to university in the 80s to do a degree. I have a BSc in marketing yeah. from, the, from Lancaster University, which is the best marketing school in, in the UK. And then I have a PhD in marketing. Um, and I'm, I, I, so I can't answer the question because that's always what I, always what I liked. I think it is one of the roots to my difference in the sense that most of these marketing professors we talk about became a marketing professor because they like being a professor. And I became a marketing professor because I like marketing. I have no interest in being a professor at all. Yeah. See what I mean? There's a very big difference. I got off. I got super hard 
on anything to do. I went to Wacker Drive, the home of the American Marketing Association was 19, and I was aroused by being there, <laughs> just standing outside, right? I cannot, expl- I cannot explain that. And right? we shouldn't explain that. Other 19-year-olds yeah. were getting aroused by very different things. For me, it was being on the appropriately named Wacker Drive, like literally looking at the name. But my girlfriend at the time was there, and I was like, look, this is Wacker Drive. This is the home of the American Marketing Association. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, can we, you know, I'm like, no, let's stay here. Look at it. It's magnificent. But before you knew it was called marketing, which bit of it was it? That it, was adverti- it was advertising. It was advertising. Beginning. That was so advertising actually win because it is the yeah. tip of the spear, right? Yeah. What happened with me early, I, most of us are suckered. No, no one's suckered in by, you know, touch points or pricing or anything. <laughs> What happened though was I recognized, I taught uh, what was called integrated marketing at the time in Minnesota. That was my area of focus, right? But I worked out between Minnesota and London Business School that it was too superficial and not strategic enough and not that cool in, in, to teach it. And I, I transferred to brand and, and, and introduced the brand management course at London Business School in what, 99, because I knew that was the game. I knew that was the game. So, I, I, yeah, advertising hooked me like everyone else, but I was quick to go, oh, hang on. It's right at the end. It's quarter to midnight. It's not that interesting. I need to swim upstream here and get into the meat of it. And that was quite unusual at the time. And that led to me getting LVMH because LVMH yeah. were looking for a branding professor. And there was only two or three of us in the world at the time. Sounds odd now. But I had this uh, wonderful woman come and sit in my class at London Business School, my brand management class, who was 60-something, didn't explain who she was, and she was just you know, the number two at LVMH and she was here to assess me. And the next thing I got an invitation to go down to Paris and off we went. And I had no interest in luxury <laughs> at all, right? So I remember coming out of Garden or Station, I couldn't speak French, I had no interest in luxury, I really didn't want to be there. And um, I remember standing in Garden or Station and they were late picking me up to take me to the headquarters to meet all the senior guys. And I gave them 10 more minutes because I'm like, if they don't come in another 10 minutes, I can argue that I thought no one was yeah. coming. I went home and I'll just get rid of it. And I remember genuinely being of the mind. There was a train guy. I said, fuck, I'll go back. And of course, what happened is it became a life-changing thing. Not because of the luxury bit, but because I got to work with the CEOs of all the top brands for the next like 13 years. And were they looking for a professor to come in and consult? Or were they looking for a professor to train internally? Both, like, both. Right. So... so what was happening was LVMH was about 10, 10 years old at the time. They just started to run into problems. They had about 30 odd brands and they discovered that what works for one brand doesn't work for another. It had been called Vuittonization. They'd taken Louis Vuitton strategy and tried it on Dior and Marc Jacobs and it hadn't worked. And so the whole group had said, we need our own approach. So they said, okay, go and get an expert on branding. That's where I came in. And then my job was First, to understand from all the different people in the group how, what, what the logic was. Turn it into a program which began the art of luxury branding, which we ran for 10 years, training everyone in luxury branding. And then go in and be professor de maison and work for the different brands as they encountered different problems. And so it became this goal. I mean, you became part of the furniture after 10 years. You know, and I got to work in San Francisco on pricing, benefits, mascara, I worked on Dom Perignon's brand positioning. You know what I mean? It yeah. was it was proper for the CEOs as well. Do you know what I mean? Like we yeah. went to Dom Perignon's home territory in Annie and spent five days deciding how we're going to position the brand for the future. It yeah. was touching stuff. You know, I mean, you were there. You know. And at what stage was it, or did it become less common for marketers to deal with the C-suite? Because you said you were working hand in hand. Pretty oh, much, it's pretty, but... it's pretty rare, right? I mean, that in LVMH, the, the, the rareness is there weren't really brand managers at LVMH. 
brand or maison, as they would have called it, was so important, yeah. it, it went straight up to the top. It's always been pretty, I mean, I think what you're seeing now is we have marketers that are incapable of talking at board level. In a previous generation, we had marketers that weren't really involved in it at all. We've never really been there. When we've now had a CMO put to that top place, what happens more often than not, we have this conversation about can we get more marketers into the boardroom and no one then asks the follow-up question, what the fuck do we do when we get there? Because they're just not capable of dealing with that strata. So I think we have a hit rate of one or two out of 10, which is pretty shitty. And has that always been the case though, like from your, your early days of being a professor? Yeah, look, I, I don't think we've ever had, we, there's always been exceptions. I don't think we've ever had um, marketers in that senior position very often. We have, yeah. a, you know, the Terry Leahy's of the world are good examples where they've made it, but they're exceptional individuals, right? It's yeah. not been marketing that's propelled them. I think that part has always been bad news. What I do think, to be a fogey about it for a minute, has got worse, is the general quality of marketing has definitely decreased mm. over the last 20 years, a little bit. I do feel like we're on the way back a bit now. I feel like we're handling the recession quite well. Mm. I've never seen in my lifetime such a standard, clever response to the recession being that we need to maintain investments for the following reasons. And I'm, you know, I'm one mm. of the many reasons why. We, we've really pushed the message, don't let this recession knock you off, not just for the recession, but for the next 10 years. Keep your money in, you know? I think you're right, it's definitely changing. I mean, for us anyway, and I don't mean this to sound too brown nosy, but the mini MBA has been instrumental in us being able to understand client-side marketers and understand Great. our clients better. Great. But presumably that program in itself is helping to turn the ship around. I hope so. At a small level. I hope so. I mean, I, I tell you, I did a thing for the Marketing Academy uh, in the UK not that long ago. Um, and as you always do, I, like, I wasn't put a talk together for you know, quite a senior bunch. And I said to the organizers, to Sherilyn and the team, I said, Get, ask them if they've got any questions for me. And I got 22 questions out of 25 people. And I looked at the questions and I'm like, fuck me, I don't need to talk here. These are questions beyond what I would have presented about my stuff or, or stuff that I'm involved in. You know, stuff like, is excess share of voice being affected by the fact that we, don't, we can't account for all the money being spent on comps? Like, so like, don't explain excess share of voice. Let's talk about the implication, advanced stuff. And they'd all clearly read my stuff. I'm saying they all agreed with it. So I sat in this amazing session for an hour and a half and I just put the questions up one at a time and answered them. And they loved it and I loved it. And it was like, yeah, we're reaching a level now where there's an advanced marketing conversation to be had. And I love being part of that. Do you know what I mean? I really love it. I love it, love it. So yeah, I do think we are getting, the general level has got worse. The Gary V's of this world and Neil Patel's have had their <clears> impact. But there is this feeling that there's a core group that are winning, that are, you know, in their late 30s, that are gonna rise to be CMOs that are pretty good. And I, I like that, I really, a lot of them are women. I like that too. I think we're seeing a real change and I think it's really good. And how, so how did the mini MBA come about then? Was that just triggered by your own life changes and becoming a dad, was that yeah, significant? Yeah, it's a big part it? of it. There's two things going on. There's a, you know, the more textbook thing, which is, it was clear that, as I said, marketing was, the quality of marketing was terrible. Yeah. Um, and yet I wasn't really looking at business schools doing much about it. You know, spending a hundred grand in two years isn't something most people can do to get a good education. And so I looked at that and thought, well, there's an opportunity there. I was also obsessed. Marketing Week gets 600,000 unique visitors a year, uh, sorry, a month. And I was looking at that thinking, if I can do, all, if I can get 1% of them to do my course for a grand, 
will make six million quid, which wasn't far from the truth, right? But then, yeah, you're right. I had a, I had a, a, a daughter, um, and you know, I, you can't travel to well, you can, but you shouldn't travel two, three weeks of the month overseas if you've got a young kid. So I didn't, but I had to find a, a substitute for a million quid's worth of consulting, and that's what we picked, and that's worked great. I mean, I have a pod in my back paddock. Um, and the best way, it sounds weird and it's almost a challenge for me, the best way for me to make money and also generate job satisfaction is not to go anywhere. Which was the exact opposite yeah. before. Going to Paris or going to New York was financially rewarding and you learned a lot. I learned more sat in that pod in the back paddock now. It's, it's really a mind fuck, right? I, I, I can't, I get offered enormous amounts of money to do jobs, but it wouldn't pay me as much to sit in my back paddock and it wouldn't be as enjoyable. So it's a real, it's a real mindfuck. I don't want to go over stuff that you've said before, which I know we inevitably will at times anyhow, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's, there's a few points I want, to, I want to bring up, and one of them is around the lack of marketing or training in the industry, which we don't need to you know, dig yeah, into, yeah. I think we all know that that is the case. And we all know that it's probably worse in marketing than other industries, Much worse. it'd probably be weird of me to assume that's necessarily No, no, case, it's much worse, and, and the other thing that makes it really peculiar is we're very proud of it. That the thing that really disturbs me and has disturbed me throughout my career is I'm sure there, there are a few accountants without training, but they're not yeah. on Twitter going, I don't have a fucking degree in accounting. I've got no training in accounting. Look at me. I'm a fucking winner. Do they get found out quicker then? Is that what it is? It's a good question. <laughs> How do they get away with it? I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, I had one woman once on Twitter. She did delete the tweet eventually. Actually say, I am proud of not having any marketing training. And I, I, I replied to her, Reread your tweet. Look how stupid you sound. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're a nihilist. You know what I mean? Um, and then she, she deleted it. But that's, that's the world that the Gary V's have created. Revel in your ignorance of the discipline. Now, I don't think the discipline is necessarily in great shape. As I've said, I think universities aren't teaching great courses. But nonetheless, it's something special yeah. to boast about your lack of training. Give me another industry or profession that does it's that. It's really yeah. weird, and it really bugs me. It always has bugged me. I wonder if... I remember talking to the late, great Murray, Murray Calder about yeah. the whiskey, his experience in the whiskey game, and I always remember him saying you, it's hard to find a shit whiskey or shit scotch because the cost of entry is so high, isn't it? It takes you 20 years to turn something out that's any good. It does. And, and you always need a cost of entry in marketing. Yeah, and we'll never have it because... No. It's such, we know, there aren't even, there's not a commonality in marketing job titles. It won't, you know, yeah. I, I'm often asked this, you know, what does marketing manager mean? It could mean 12 grand a year working on PowerPoint, or it could mean you're in charge of a billion dollar portfolio. True. So we don't have that commonality. So there's always room for it to be all over the shop. Mm. I, I'm really in two places about things like Twitter, marketing Twitter as we call it. It's a place of total bullshit. I'm no longer working in marketing Twitter. I just think it's so full of shit yeah. and nonsense and it's a refraction of something. And it also gives you a very bad steer on how marketing is because it's basically a hundred people talking shit to each other, right? It's not representative of the silent majority. But at the same time, I do think it's enabled a, a very broad swathe of people to learn names like Peter Field. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To learn things like excess share of voice. Which yeah. otherwise would have been impossible because the professors were all teaching in Simon Sinek's gold circle of piss. Yeah, silent majority. I've not even heard that before. Like well, it has it has, it has connotations of fascism okay, good, and burning good. and burning people <laughs> on the crosses. But um, it, it, I, I mean it. In my, I've always written to that person, right? Yeah. Without giving too much away. When I write for Marketing Week, I'm absolutely have no interest in people on marketing Twitter 
because they're a small bunch of people all nice, but up their own rectums, right? I've mm. got to chaos, stay away from that. I write to a marketer who's actually working in a marketing role that isn't going to reply, isn't going to post a comment, but is doing the job in the marshes. You see what I mean? I've always been conscious of that, right? I don't yeah. give a fuck about the, the, you know, that cognoscetti of 100 people that are all talking. They get in the way. Yeah. We've got a million marketers, and that, that's who I love. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I love, I love Twitter, and I, and I despise it both for the same reasons, which is its limitations and that kind of lack of context where you, know, you can just end up trying to stab each other with a tweet over what a brand means. What no, I'm with it. And, and it's really weird. But I, I, I can't take that anymore. I, yeah. I'm pretty, I, I can't bear, it, it's definitely dying in my opinion. Mm. And mark my words, it's got, not Twitter as a whole, different communities. I think people don't realise, you know, there are different communities on it. The marketing Twitter community is dying. Mm. You can see it very clearly. It's becoming more and more desiccated and concentrated and evil. And it's, you know, people deride LinkedIn. You get a much more decent conversation on LinkedIn because people are attached to it professionally. So we don't have to deal with nut jobs. And we don't have to deal with people who don't... Here's my other problem. Don't do marketing talking about marketing. Please fuck off, right? Please fuck off and talk about something else, right? We had this debate about brand tracking. You know, what's wrong with brand tracking? And like, None of you are doing brand tracking. Stop talking about it. You're buffoons, right? It's a refraction of a refraction of a refraction. Yeah. This is nonsense, right? You know, the debate was, do we like brand tracking? No, we prefer category entry points. How the fuck do you think you measure and remeasure category entry points? You have to do some form of brand tracking. That's all it means. A recurrent measure of brand yeah. using customer data, right? Yeah. So it turns into this it's, like, Ugh, you know. It's, yeah, it's really frustrating. I was on, um, and you were on Brief Bros, and I was on Brief That's Bros right. recently too, which is the closest I think we'll get to sharing a stage. But I made the point to uh, ha- Howard and Henry, isn't it? I got it on really well with them, and I liked them, and I was actually worried I'd upset one of them when they asked me about brief templates. We use a gasp. Because the point I made was that we, we're not interested in reinventing stuff that people have worked Good for man. decades to get right. So we use one from BBH from, I think, the 70s, and one from JWT from the 60s. Because I can't make it any better... And the yeah. thing I see on marketing Twitter is people constantly trying to redo stuff that's already been done. And the point you I made it. to them was like, the amount, I've lost count of the amount of times I've said to people, read Jeremy Bullmore. That's all you need Stephen to do. Stephen Wright and Bullmore. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Stephen King's uh, planning. Stephen King. Stephen Wright's a DJ. You're right. Yeah. All, <laughs> read Stephen <laughs> Wright as well. Yeah, right. Listening to Stephen Wright. But the, but the point being that just like these constant arguments about what something means, it's like it's already been done. So let's do something more progressive. But yeah, but, that, but, but just, see, that's a very advanced, very initial point of view, right? It's good enough. It's been around for long enough. Let's just use it and, and not even like move on to the next topic. Let's use it a thousand times to do jobs. But if you're not doing work, all you're doing is bouncing around inside a box, trying to have a fight with yourself about stuff. So the difference is you're being practical and prosaic and saying, look, we can use this and it works. I've seen it work and I've got lots of work to do. The problem with the people that have the loudest voices in the marketing Twitter universes, they're not actually doing any fucking work. So they're slicing and, and quartering a pie that doesn't need to be cut. Yeah, they're arguing about the thing. They're not just doing the thing and making something. It's become, that's why I say reification. Yeah. It's become a thing of a thing of a thing. And it needs to be ignored because it's just wankum. Total yeah, yeah. wankum. In academia, we're certainly looking at the, the, the states, if that's not too cool a word, of courses available at universities in the UK. Are the professors who currently, currently teach, are they aware of Jeremy Bullmore? Are they aware of Stephen? In the King? UK? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, and why is that such a disconnect, though? It doesn't make any sense. It does when you understand how arcane marketing... So marketing academia, the route into marketing at a university 
is usually geography, cultural studies, everything but marketing. I have been, I can't remember the university, so I don't want to name it in case I get it wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Bath, but my apologies to Bath University if it was Exeter, right? I went down there with one of my old bosses to meet the marketing department, and we thought we were going down there to talk to them about how to grow their marketing connections with the marketing industry and become more applied, right? So we came down for our own cognizance just to help them. We entered a debate between the marketing department at this university. Was it appropriate to work in marketing if you're a marketing academic, right? Was it even appropriate, right? And I, t- I got I a good 20 minutes of like, you know, clutching my testicles before I eventually just went fucking bananas, yeah? <laughs> and I said, you must, I'm literally mid-flow, some idiot. Is, is having this conversation about ethics and, and I said you must stop ethics. now you, well ethics and cult and you know yeah. are we commercial and we corporate or are we here to learn I said you must stop now I said you must stop this you're all a fucking joke that's exactly what you're all a fucking joke to me most of them can't do marketing and they're not even prepared to do it and, and you know I despair about it because a lot of kids at 19 or 20 go learn about marketing and it's ruined for them and Gary Vee's right on this point by people who are so out of touch, you know, it's, it's, it's gone. Mm. So yeah, it, it, again, we could apply bothism to this. I don't like the way universities are teaching marketing. It's, it's horrible. And I think business schools are gradually dying because they're so out of touch. But I don't like denigrating them because there should be hope that we can learn. So yeah, there is no easy answer there. And but I- yeah, if you went back to uni and you started teaching Jeremy Bullmore, right? And you started teaching Peter Field, extra show voice. You would you would be great. What well, you'd have my experience, right? When I went to MIT, right, and I was genuinely. I mean, I don't want to sound too arrogant. I'm going to sound arrogant. But I don't want to sound too arrogant. I, I went over there. My wife was highly entertained by the fact that I was so fucking intimidated by MIT. So I, you know, I was a postdoc at Wharton, and I'd been offered a job at Harvard, and blah blah blah. But I, it'd been a long time, and I'd been at you know Melbourne, which is a good second tier school. So I go get an invitation, go and teach at MIT for a year, fill, fill in for the for uh, the professors. They had a gap. I love Boston, and I'm like, yeah, fuck, we haven't got any kids yet. Let's go. Last chance. I knew it was my last chance to get a, mm. a hit of America. And my wife loved the fact I was shitting my pants because MIT is three, four in the world. You know what I mean? It's got fucking nuclear scientists and Nobel prizes in the office and all that. But I got in there that first day of teaching, and it was it was a genuinely weird experience. It was an atmosphere. I've taught a thousand classes, and I was like, I don't care what's going on here a weird look and a funny sound and a weird silence and that night she was like well, how was your MBA class and I'm like I fucking don't know I just fucking don't know what happened and I went back to the same class on the Wednesday and it had doubled in size because the word had spread that there was a wow. guy here teaching about what he did last Tuesday and they were like what the fuck is this this guy what you yeah. mean you were doing that I'm like yeah I was doing that yeah. this, is the, this is what I was doing and they're like yeah tell me more about that <laughs> it isn't a formula I'm like no it's not a formula so if you, you, bring, you bring actual marketing stories and experiences into an MBA school with people who want to learn about marketing, and what do you know? It goes fucking bananas. We touched on briefing. I, I wanted to plug the IPA and Better Briefs work that you've been involved in recently. Yeah, very good stuff. Why did, why, why did you think we needed to do it? And, and is that, does that contradict the point that I just made about the BBH and JWT templates? No, or do you not, think it, Do you think it's not, just deeper? It's a deeper problem? Definitely. Look, I, I, I agree with you about briefs, the document, and the whole one of the big lessons of briefing is the document isn't that important. So I mean, it's important, but yeah, yeah. there's other parts to it. I got involved in it because I like those two boys that were doing it. 
And we've all had those conversations. You get pissed with someone who works in the agency world and you say, oh, you know, you've won Ericsson or fucking, you know, Heineken or whatever, well done. And then you say, what's it like? How they, what are they like? Oh, they're very good, very, very good. And then you have a couple more beers and it's like, I'm not so sure they know what the fuck they're doing. And three beers in, like, we are fucking lost here, man. They have no clue. I have no idea what's going on. And I think the, the better briefs thing was an attempt to solidify and measure that and show it's not just anecdotal. Most agencies know that their clients don't have strategy. Yeah. yeah. Just before we move on, so I want to talk to you about planning briefly, especially given the time of year it is. But I also want to squeeze in a listener question that isn't now an official listener question because we had loads. We went to a few of our, oh, did you? Of our listeners privately. We didn't want to announce it yet. And um, the wonderful Gillian Wrightford, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. I know Gillian, yeah. yeah. So she's a, she's a listener, she's ace. She's and she, she, so one of her questions about training, in fact, was quite interesting. She said, how do marketers know? Or how, do, how can we get them to understand that they have a deficiency in, in their learning? Like, how does that happen? How do people prompt? Because the trouble is, there's so many of them. <laughs> It's, I love Gillian. It's the wrong question. I don't care. Neither should she and neither should you. Let the untrained, dirty, unwashed, non-trained marketers be as they are. Let the enlightened few get trained, get better, get above them. And win. And win. It, it, we're not curing cancer. We're not trying to fix the whole discipline. I'm not saying I won't help if, if that's what someone wants to do, but that's not how this works. This is a capitalist yeah. enterprise. Let those that invest in themselves and have the intellectual horsepower to learn from others, let them win, and let the others fail. Yeah, it's not a bad, it's not a bad concept, you know. No, no, I suppose it's a bit like um, it's a bit like that woman's tweet, isn't it? It's trying to convince her that she she's a luddite when actually you're just playing chess with a pigeon or whatever the saying is. Exactly. Let them be luddites, and I think that the whole point is, you know, we measure mini MBA right, not on was it a good course or did you have good insights. Did it make you a more effective marketer, right? And 98% say yes. So you're going to win more then. Do you know what I mean? That's the point. Yeah. That's what, I'm not here to improve everyone's marketing. I'd like them to stay shit, right? Stay shit. Because it means my guys that I've trained will kill you all the more easily in the market. Do even better. It's, it's a relative game, right? But there's nothing wrong with that philosophy. You know what I mean? I don't have a charter. I'm not here to help everyone. I'm here to help those that want to get better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't want to see The minute you try and sell training and education as someone that doesn't see the value of it it's not a it's not going to work b it's a waste of time and c fuck them there was um before we move on in fact there was something i meant to ask you earlier that i forgot to which was it was one of the most memorable parts to me of i can't remember if it was a brand management or the marketing mini mba it's not really relevant my wife has a separate favorite moment was when you appeared completely bar naked which was alarming that that was her favorite. it's a lot of man it's a lot of man you're quite a trim good looking fellow she's not used to that kind of that much man in front of her no, I, I uh but the one the thing that i remember is you talking about i think it was a throwaway comment you said marketing is a blood sport hmm. And I think, I might be remembering it incorrectly, but I think you were talking about, and there's probably parallels with us talking about marketing Twitter, arguing about you know, the process or how to define a brand instead of actually just building a great brand. Your point at the time was, it actually doesn't really matter. It's all irrelevant as long as you win, as long as you succeed, as long as what you do works. It think- sounds like me. I mean, look, it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a limited finite number of customers with a limited finite number of dollars to spend. It's not about, this is why I don't like marketing science, right? It it takes us in the wrong direction towards some kind of perfect truth. The game is about making more money for your brand, if that's the game game that you're in, right? And Mm. therefore, if you get that money over someone else, it's victory. The end. 
I mean, you can bring purpose into it if you want, but it gets thorny and difficult, right? It's a funny business, isn't it, that might purpose lark? It has its advantages, and it is a genuine path. Yeah. I get frustrated because I'm now painted as being Mr. Anti-Purpose, right? I think there's a couple of brands that illustrate how it works beautifully. I think there's a lot of brands that illustrate that it's a load of bollocks for them. You know what I mean? Again, there's, people struggle with relativity, and it works for one <clears> brand, doesn't work for another, right? That, that's, it's just strategy. It's just a choice. Play your purpose, don't play your purpose. Make a choice. There isn't some scientific yes, no here. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and it's, it's another one of those binaries, isn't it? We did, um, I know you're familiar with Isolated Tours, which is something we did during lockdown. And as a consequence of that success, we've been shortlisted for a Purpose Before Profit Award, which is good in one respect, but also completely contradicts everything I've been talking about for years on the podcast. And it just feels really no, alien. No, but, but, but in I, that instance, I'm quite happy that that has but a Purpose I was going to say to you, that's but, great, because if one of your clients is genuinely Purpose ahead of Profit, that is a lovely way to play it. And if another client is profit at a purpose... Yeah, just hide that card and play another. <laughs> and, and here's the complication, the Unilever complication. If yeah. you're multi-brand and one brand is purpose and another brand is profit, that's also okay. And yeah. I don't understand why a company as smart and as experienced as Unilever doesn't get that point. And I think Job's head has partly yeah. been taken for that reason. They should be able to manage that precept. Some brands are purpose-driven, duff. Some brands yeah. are pot noodle, get over it, move on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> pot noodle. What's the purpose of pot noodle? For fuck's sake. Uh, before we get to listener questions then, it's going to be November-ish when this comes out. So it's probably a little bit too late, but knowing most marketers like I do, there's probably some still knee-deep in planning for next year. So yeah, what, are the key, what are the key things that they should be thinking about? Well, first of all, do it earlier. Yeah. Um, the reason I say that is, is because... Although, let's, let's say a company's on a calendar year, just to keep it simple, right? Mm. Obviously, different companies have different cadences. You always want to try and have the plan done before finance. That's the first lesson, right? If finance have already allocated your money, then we kind of are already stuffed yeah. here. Right? I'm not saying you're going to get what you ask from finance. I'm saying you should be proposing an investment, not taking a cost, right? So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is keep tactics completely out of it until the end. Your job is to understand the situation, how it's changed, build a strategy, and all the strategy, and again, we could go about marketing Twitter. We've never had more marketing strategists in, in the history of marketing. It's never been more fucking unclear what the fuck they're saying. So let me be very clear. If you with your brand can answer the three questions, who are we targeting, what is the position, what are my objectives, you have a strategy. And then you can go and visit the tactics and the execution, right? It's really that simple. Mm. And it ain't simple answering those questions. It quickly turns right. into a house of turtles, right? But don't let, you know, the definition of strategy be complex. Let strategy be simple, because when you get into <clears> that <throat> box, it's fucking complicated. And once you've got a strategy, then only then go to your tactics. I had someone on my Q&A today asking about TikTok versus Instagram, and it's week two of the course. And I'm like, we'll get to that in yeah. week nine at the end of the module. You've got nine weeks of work to do before yeah. we even know the answer to that question. And they probably won't ask it after week nine. Well, they won't need to because they'll know. It'll be screaming the obvious because yeah, exactly. the strategy tells you what to do. Um, and then finally, look, when it comes to strategy, uh, it doesn't have to be put, There isn't a perfect answer, okay? Get something that's what you feel you're happy with. Get a good executional solution. Run it with your best uh, you know, wishes and then learn turn the wheel to the next year and evolve. 
Mm. You know, you've got, as a, if you're a good junior marketer in your late 20s, you've got 30 cycles, right? I'm lucky as a consultant, I've done a thousand cycles. I'm not smarter than the average marketer. I just got in a position where if you work for a client with 70 brands in 25 countries, and there's 10 of those, you're yes. gonna live a thousand planning lives, right? If you can get 30 cycles where you've learned mm. by execution, you're gonna get pretty good, right? Doesn't have to be perfect. What's your worst planning cycle? A couple of things, they start with tactics. So they have an Instagram plan, yeah. right? So they've already got the, the, the cart in the wrong place and the horse behind it. Um, they have massively unrealistic objectives, you know, increased preference from 4% to 25%. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. boo boo. Um, they, they, they don't have clarity on position. So positioning is really important at both the brand level and the product level, and it really does answer most of the questions. But if you haven't got it, it just becomes a shit fest, you know? I think the most thing I'm seeing at the moment is brands that get sucked into so much complexity they can't explain what they're trying to do. Mm. It, you know, they need, they, uh, I have a very good friend who's a very senior CMO and she took me through, they're going to do a big sponsorship and she took me through why they were going to, it was a brilliant idea, really exciting. She said, and here's how it ties into the brand and she went off on a 25 minute soliloquy on what the brand was to explain and I never got it. And I, you know, and by the end of it, she knew not only had I not got it, she'd lost it as well and it's like, mm. no, 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 no. It, it needs great complexity to produce, and our brand is this, this, and this. Like mini MBA, it's MBA level, it's all about you know, a, a, applied, it's not academic, it's applied, and it's convenient. They're the three things that are, we've learned and evolved and decided upon. That's what we drive, you know? Not always mm. successfully, but by God, we're, we're driven by it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I could have 25 words, I could have 17 slides, it, it would defeat the object. You know? Yeah. At this time of year, we often pick up briefs where there might be, the objectives might be particularly woolly, but they're woolly mostly because, not because the marketer isn't any good, but just because they don't really have any brand tracking or they have no funnel data. Yeah, they haven't got the system in place. Yeah. Well, look, it's your, I, I say I did a big job for Dentsu uh, not that long ago. And my advice to them was segment your clients. There are clients that don't know what the fuck they're doing and mm. there are clients that do. And the clients that don't know what, they're, what the fuck they're doing, some of them know they don't know and some of them don't know they don't know. Yeah. So treat them all differently. The clients that know what they're doing, the P&Gs of the world, just execute. Don't fucking swim upstream, execute. The clients that think they're doing a great job and are hopeless, don't want an agency making them look foolish. You could try and gradually chip away, but it's a waste of time. Mm. The sweet spot are those clients who are like, we don't quite know, but we're open, you know, proper relationship, old school, full service relationship. There's a, there's a value added service there to be had. But trying to do it with those three types of client, all the same goes wrong. So for me, there's an old school 80s relationship between an agency and a client in a, in a third of the cases. There's just take the idiot client's money and do what they will and enjoy working for the expert client and, and executing a great plan. It's a segmentation game for me. And I don't think enough agencies get that. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. We've always just had a Venn diagram of good work, good money, and try and find the overlap and make sure you're either doing one or the other. But actually, I found it too frustrating which is which has led to i think probably opportunity of growing income because it's too frustrating to work with people that don't get it yeah listen uh, my advice on that would be and i have, i feel your pain um I, well, I used to train mckinsey consultants for a long time and um I, I used to teach with a guy who taught client leadership and um he was a really interesting mckinsey partner 
ex-retired, you know, really experienced. And he taught them all client leadership, which in a nutshell is if a client's going to do something stupid, uh, tell them it's stupid, but tell them you're going with them anyway if they want to do it, right? You can't lose. Mm. And, and that's how you reconcile that pain within, right? You say to the client, listen, this isn't going to work. Uh, if it does, I'll be delighted, but it's not going to. But my God, I'll come with you and we'll do it and I'll die with you. But fuck, it's not going to work. You can't lose at that <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, and also your point. soul is now clear yeah, because you've yeah, told yeah, them yeah. and they love you more because you're doing it for the money <laughs> and you know it you see what I mean yeah you're going into battle anyway, it's, it's a really but, important yeah. point and, and it really resolves that issue for you and the client by the way the best thing that happens is they ignore you do it it fucks up and they go fucking Giles is a gym I can listen yeah, to Giles yeah. next time yeah. you can't lose that's why you listen to a 30 year old McKinsey 30 year veteran of McKinsey he's done that shit before that's how you resolve it have you ever got involved much with agencies uh, very little I, I've done tra- <laughs> It sounds rude. My general sense of agencies is, obviously they're full of shit. Also, they very rarely pay, right? So you can get hooked into it. If I get, you know, I've told my sales team this on mini MBA. If an agency, big agency group comes to you, you know, wanting to train their people, great, but it probably won't transpire because they're full of shit ultimately and they won't spend money. Yeah. Whereas if a client comes to you and says, we want to train our guys, they're going to train their guys. Yeah. See what I mean? So no, um, it's been, you know... A, it's you know as you, you know, it's it's eight percent of marketing. The comms bit isn't that yeah, interesting yeah, to me. Yeah. And second, they're not good payers. Swim upstream. To, in my world, I don't have to do comms. Why would I do comms? So I swim upstream. It, it literally has been the case in my career. I'm not, it's not just a metaphor. I've been going through a revolving door, leaving a client. The work's done. The strategy work's done, and the agencies are arriving, and I'm getting the fuck out of there. Enjoy, make your money. I'm out of here. What about what about consultants? So agencies that might wear an agency badge, but they're more marketing consultants. Yeah, no, I've, I mean they've got more money, obviously, and I've I've had my fill of you know, McKinsey a bit. I did a bit of Bain, but a bit of Accenture here and there over the years. You run into them. They're mu- m- yeah. Are they more like agencies than they are clients? I think. No, no, they're smarter. They have a book of strategy, and it is a book. You know, the ultimate, and they have a structure in place that enables them to go. From a junior MBA level, twenty-nine-year-old consultant, up to a partner in three seconds, which that structure is very useful. And you try doing that in an agency, it just turns mm. into a fucking zoo, your spaghetti, you know. So their structure is very good. You've got to be quite old and experienced to realise how full of shit someone like McKinsey or Bain really is, right? It takes a long time to get there, right? And you also see with clients the ultimate value of hiring Bain is that you know. If it goes wrong, the cl- the agency, the client can say, you know, it's fucking Bain. How are we supposed? We've got Bain to do this, right? Like they'll hire McKinsey or Bain to do the market research, right? Yeah. For nine hundred grand, why would they do that? They just want everything to be done by someone, you know, unquestioned at the board level. We got Bain doing this. You know what I mean? Mm. It's brand. It's just brand. Yeah, I suppose, and that's an easy conversation to have in the boardroom, isn't it? Yeah, McKinsey told us this. Yeah. Who've you got doing your research, McKinsey? I've got a great mate. Uh, he won't mind me saying it, Bruce, who, um, Aussie, Aussie, funnily <laughs> Aussie. enough, who famously, uh, he, he's quite experienced now, he's about my age, he got called into a meeting in Chicago, uh, among the senior guys, and um, Accenture had done a market segmentation, and Bruce has done a lot of market segmentations internally as a, as a client, and so he let the Accenture guys present the whole market segmentation model. And he waited and waited and he said, okay, great. Who's in that segment there? Give me three clients who are in that segment. 
and and the consultant said, well, we don't know exactly who's there. It's kind of based on personas and you know data. And he said, well, that's why it's pointless then, isn't it? Because yeah. we don't, you know, in B two B, if we don't know who's in there, what are we supposed to do with it? He said, yeah. this is all pointless work. And everyone else in the room was like, oh my god, he's just like he's ripped into them. You know what I mean? But it takes experience to be able, and he wasn't being nasty to them. It yeah. just takes experience to call it out like that. And by the time you get there, they've made their money, and they do do good work. Don't get me wrong. It's just. You know, the, the, the gap between an agency and a, and a management consulting firm in terms of price is gigantic, in terms of scope is gigantic, but in terms of actual quality, it's not that big. It's big, but it's not that big. Yeah. Have you heard, you probably heard Rob Campbell talk about um, one of his talks he gave at McKinsey once. I think it was a big open room of thousand consultants, and he said, right, raise your hand if you've ever started a business. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Slide two, <laughs> shuffling. Yeah. No, but I mean, but. there's also that world where we give them too much shit, right? Yeah. They perform a very good... I mean, you would not put an advertising agency in charge of your strategy ever, in any situation. You would, if you were running a business and you were really desperate, you'd bring in a McKinsey or a Bain if they're the right people. Yeah. You'd bring them in. I mean, I've put MBAs into all the major management consulting firms, and three, four years later, they are a hundred times more experienced than smart, given what they've been through, right? So yeah, they, yeah. they do deal in strategy, and I don't think most agencies do anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, you know? I agree, I agree. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles, at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod listing companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand positioning. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Marketing is incredibly confused with sales. I think you're the one who's more confused, Gary V. Sunshine. Well, let's do some listener questions. Here we okay. go. So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking a few of them. So, I'm going to start with. One of your alumni, in fact, and he's also a past client of ours, Lee Grinnell. Lee Grinnell, good yeah. guy. In recent years, we've seen companies like Adidas, Airbnb, and even Procter & Gamble admit that they overinvested in short-term metrics and so-called digital marketing, while the likes of Pepsi and Gillette have fallen foul of badly judged purpose efforts. How is it that such big market-leading companies with CMOs one would reasonably assume to be at the pinnacle of their field can get it so spectacularly wrong. It's not a reasonable assumption. that Many of the CMOs involved in those decisions are not very good. So there's an unspoken rule in, in New York City where I'm not really in this community, but I'm in it a little bit to the point where we can have a drink and talk. We go through the CMOs newly appointed of, of NASDAQ companies and you get the shake off or the, or, the, or the head nod in terms of what about such and such, you know, got good press, blah, blah, blah. No, useless, tactical mm. nonsense. Who gets promoted to those big CMO jobs is a pretty arbitrary story. So I think the answer to Lee's question is, no, you can't assume the CMOs know what they're doing. They actually to, to rise to the CMO position of a large Fortune 500 company has got very little to do with marketing skill. There are, there are many good marketers. There's a lot of political players or people who just got lucky. Yeah. And, and, and that explains much of this. Yeah. Well, they've just played the job hop game, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, they're not... I know them because if I hang out there and I meet a CMO, the good ones sit down with me and bang heads and talk about this and talk about that. And the shit ones just fucking avoid you like a... 
like a, like a fucking psychopath in a circus. Do you know what I mean? They're like they, they stay as far away from you as they can in case. Not that I would do this, but they're you know, like, do you know what ASOV means? You know, what I mean? like, oh my god, I don't know anything about marketing, and he might bust me, right? You can smell it. You yeah. can smell the nerves coming off them, right? So yeah, it's it's a lot of bad, a lot of good, and a lot of bad CMOs. Auntie Jillian. So this, so this is, I suppose, this is a slight extension of what we spoke about earlier. What's in the way of marketers upskilling themselves when they quite clearly suffer because of capability issues? And why is Byron Sharp so grumpy? I have to throw that one in. First. Yeah, but two, two different, very different there. questions. Yeah, very um, people don't know their shit. It's a very important observation. You can always rationalise your shitness brilliantly, right? It, and people fool themselves, you know, on, on any level. And in marketing especially it's quite possible to tell yourself you're good at something when you're not. So if you don't have an aspiration to be better and you think you're great, the irony is the more shit you are, the less likely you are you want to get trained. Most of the people I train are already pretty good. They want to get better. The ones who are really shithouse are completely on a different planet. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. Why is Byron so grumpy? It's a combination of factors. Uh, piles? No, no. Um, <laughs> I don't think he is. I think what you get with Byron, you get very different Byrons at different times. Yeah. He's actually got a delightfully dry Kiwi sense of humour. He's not a knob, you know. He comes from a rough background. He's a, farm, a farming background. He's not some private school knob. That's the other thing about Byron you've got to remember. He does sound like a 19th century romantic hero coming across the, you know, across the, the meadow in his, in his puffy shirt. He's actually, you know, he's a, he's a working class boy from a farm. And he doesn't suffer fools. He's got a big ass brain on him. He's got a big ass brain. Um, I, I've always found him to be a pain in the ass, but incredibly entertaining. When he's funny, he's funny as fuck, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, he's grumpy as fuck. He doesn't really give a care. I think the main answer is he really doesn't fucking care. <laughs> doesn't give a fuck. Uh, last one from Brian McCready. As a profession, it feels like we've lost our voice on pricing. It feels like a long climb back for many marketers to reclaim a role in it, particularly those that have only ever focused on comms. Practically, what's the best way for marketers on the ground to learn the skills of pricing, to get involved and to contribute? Look, I think it's a great question and the answer is now. So we're going to go for this recession. We're on an 18% uh, recessionary curve. And that's before Trust worked her magic, right? It's going to be a lot worse now. So if you imagine losing 20 points of gross margin in a year, what that does to a business, right? Mm. Um, It means that we're going to have to increase prices. And this is the moment for marketers not... I mean, I meet so many fucking dumb marketers who say, oh, you're teaching pricing. I don't do pricing. I'm not in charge of pricing. You were never in charge of pricing. What you were is you were sitting around a table contributing to the pricing decision that we were making, right? Mm. So... This is the moment to put your hand up. Do a bit of research into basic pricing. Uh, Of all the modules I teach, the one that most people dread is the pricing module, and the one that they love the most at the end is the pricing module, right? It's so, no surprise, it's so close to marketing in terms of, no surprise, pricing is about consumers, about how we communicate price, about how we expect price to be, you know, to be paid. So it's a consumer issue as much as it's a production issue or a strategy issue. So now is the time to get involved, not to take control of pricing like we're invading Czechoslovakia, but in terms of get in the table and say, hey, there's some good research on pricing about how pricing is perceived, about how you do price increases from a marketing point of view. 
get in there with your voice and, and contribute. This is a great moment for, yeah. for good marketers to help, make, to help have an impact on what is probably the most important aspect. You have a, 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 an inflation level of 20%. You have a existential crisis for most companies in terms of profitability, right? So let's get the price right, but let's also, com- the key point I would love to communicate, if there's one point about this whole podcast, you know, I got sucked into pricing early because I work with pricing experts in America. It's not my natural field, but I just ended up accidentally being with guys that were proper, one level down Nobel Prize experts, right? The thing that you learn about pricing from real experts is there's price setting, then there's the price itself, and then there's communicating the price to consumers. That last point is the most important part about pricing. Yeah, It's not the price itself. It's not the way we set the price. It's the manner in which we frame and communicate the price to our consumers. It detects success or failure. And that means it's a marketing thing. So it's a huge opportunity in a difficult setting for marketers to get involved. Not take control, but get involved and be an input into pricing. It's strange how detached people see them sometimes, especially because everything we're doing from a brand building perspective is to shift it away from being a, you know, a commodity so yeah. everything else is actually, so whether it's direct or indirect, you're talking about building a brand, which is all about that extra price you can charge. Yeah, but, you, but you're smarter than the average bear there, Giles. One of the downsides of Professor Sharp's institute is how brands grow is all about sales. Mm. That's a secondary issue for me. The thing about branding that is most important is our ability to reduce price sensitivity and mm. charge a premium price, more so than driving gross demand. So if you understand that, as you do, then suddenly it's like, well, brand and price are, you know, joined at the hip. And it's a crucial point, right? But if you miss that point and you don't understand price, and it's important because price reinforces brand, brand reinforces price. How can you not be involved in it? I'll tell you a good story. Um, they hired my parent company that, that partners with Mini MBA hired a pricing consultant to come and advise me on pricing Mini MBA, which already made me fucking unhappy. <laughs> Like my, one of my dogs yeah. has like a big white, like sort of gets hackles up when she like, we, we once had a cat, a wild cat in the chicken coop. And I knew cause my age and my dog, her hair just went like that. And before you knew it, I thought there was something going on here. As soon as I met this pricing consultant, I went like, you know, I was like, oh yeah. And he said to me, uh, your, your course is too, is not expensive enough. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why would you think that then? And he said, um, we've looked at the competition and, uh, they're charging more. And I said, all right, all right. And my hackle's like, Ugh, you know. Like, so which competitors did you look at? And he listed a bunch of courses. And I said, okay, let me stop you there. None of them are our competition. So you're already wrong, right? And he said, well, how do you mean? I said, well, why do you think they're our competitors? Well, we mm. looked at them. There are other courses. I said, okay, that's not a definition of competition. That just mm. tells me you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. We've asked people who've done our course what else they, what looked, else at. they yeah. looked at. Yeah. We didn't even call it competition because we're not as dumb as you. And what we found is all the brands you just mentioned never featured once in any list. So yeah. you're looking at the wrong place. What research did you do on our non-competitors? We looked at what price they charge. So that's great. What we've been looking at is the price sensitivity of people that are considering our course using consumer research. We yeah. used the you know, Van Westen dot model and everything. So I basically just was like, I ended up stopping because I just felt so sorry for him in the end, right? But it's like, pricing is a marketing topic, not a fucking pricing. Don't come to me with your nonsense about, I've looked at other prices. I'm a fucking, I've got a PhD in marketing, right? I understand pricing, 
most mar- good marketers do. Don't fucking give me advice. You know, don't come into my own garden and tell me how to grow roses when you haven't got any fucking clue what you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? The competition that fucks you is the one that you never thought could fuck you, and by the time it's fucking you, it's too late to do anything about the fucking. It's a brilliant quote. It's Einstein. A, it's a, Einstein. It's a brilliant. Quote. Yeah, it's a good quote. That was going to be in the intro, but I wanted to make sure we used it. I wanted to make that famous. Brilliant. I said that about ten years ago, right? And no one. And what that, that quote? Yeah, no Did one you? picked up on it. So I actually, ah. I had to do the. You can say this on the podcast, but I had to do the uh, the economist equivalent of sucking my own cock. <laughs> <laughs> and I quoted, I quoted myself to get it to be far more famous. Awesome. Right, the final part of the interview then, Mark, is our four pertinent posers, starting okay. with what advice would you give to your younger self? I'd get laid more. Um, I, I've been asked this before, and um, I, I certainly wasn't Brad Pitt, but I wasn't as bad. I look at photographs of myself, and I wasn't that bad looking. So, yeah, I would have, I would have got amongst it more as a younger man. That's fair. If you could banish one thing. that's fair. Thing. <laughs> Can't agree with that. You should have, mate. You should have. You, yeah, it's too you, late now. Yeah, you're too late. It's, done. it's recorded. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> that's just one. Yeah. Just one? Choice. Uh, what would I get rid of? Digital marketing. I just don't fucking understand what it means. You know, I mean, we can go into it. I've done it a million times, but I just don't get what the prefix adds. When radio is 65% downloaded... Yeah. And when Google is 25 years old and is offering outdoor advertising solutions, what does this mean? Yeah, no, it's amazing it's still knocking about, really. Because I think you said that first about eight, ten years ago, didn't you? More? Yeah, but there's a problem with being prescient. No one remembers. What they do is, if you say it really early on, um, and it turns out to be right, no one remembers you saying it early on. And if you say, I said that ten years ago, you look like a cock. A lot of people do that, right? They go, I think you'll find I've already said that. You look. More, you might. You might get a, like a little minor point, but you lose two hundred points because you yeah, look you like lose. a cock. <laughs> uh, this is a good one. What books would you recommend to our listeners? I wouldn't. Any? I, I don't think books. I think books are obviously a good thing, but I think the actual mental investment and time investment is probably not. Is very rarely justified. I like. Of all the books I've ever read, I still like Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Is a book that's interesting. You can read on the beach. Yeah. Is it worth eight hours of your time? I don't think so. I think if you really were to spend time on, on YouTube and LinkedIn properly, you would learn more with the same time commitment. And that's a shame, but it's also a modern thing. I think people take YouTube for granted, right? If you genuinely spend time directionally, not looking at cat videos, but, but directionally trying to study, like if you want to study excess share of voice and you went on YouTube, you would learn more in, a, in four hours than any book in the world. And I have to say that's important. And same with LinkedIn. I think people don't get LinkedIn. LinkedIn is ne- it's meant to be curated, right? So I follow a fuck ton of people on LinkedIn. If, uh, and people follow me and I have this, you know, we have this little library of cascading stuff in my feed. If someone likes a Gary Vee thing or someone talking emotionally about their kids on LinkedIn, I just delete them. Because there's no time for that, right? But I delete three, four a day. Yeah. So what I get in the end is a pure stream of people that produce amazingly interesting. I learn so much on LinkedIn from smart people, and, and even smart, but smart people that are going to give me, you know, stories about a guy with one leg climbing an Everest. I'm going to get rid of them so I can focus on work, which is what LinkedIn's for. Yeah. So I curate LinkedIn and I find that news feed to be always rewarding. I might have fifteen thousand people. But they're all people that only post occasionally and post good stuff. Not enough people shoot people on LinkedIn, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. I want to be that clear. 
Do you read fiction at all? I haven't read fiction in 20 years. For the same reason, I think it's a middle age thing, but for the same reason, I, I just can't risk it not being worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I've read a lot of biographies. I do a lot of audio books. Yeah. My reading is on a screen now, I have to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't think I've sat down with a book for a long time. I'm the same. I wish I could, but I'm always stuck. Well, but you it. say that, but you know, we. I mean, I built that studio. Like when I built that pod in my back paddock to do mini MBA, I built a studio, right? Because I couldn't go to Melbourne. People don't realize in Australia, we couldn't not just go to England, we couldn't go outside of our state, which is if you're in Tasmania, it's pretty fucking heartbreaking, right? So I spent 14 months unable to leave the island of Tasmania. Now, I used to go to a studio and film for mini MBA or put my classes together. So COVID gave us the biggest demand we've ever had, but also gave me the challenge of how do I update my classes, right? So I built this pod and I had to f create a studio and I used YouTube to do everything from sound to video to soundproofing to green screen to everything, right? And when I finished it and I sent the first video back to London for editing, they said, I said, is it all right? They said, it's way better quality than what you're really? getting out of a massive studio in Melbourne. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> What I did was I used YouTube to work out how to buy the world's most expensive camera, green screen, sound setting, blah, blah, blah. I got money. I yeah. just have no idea. Yeah. I still don't understand how any of it works, what the F-stop is, all of that aperture yeah. business, right? But there's enough on YouTube to announce, enable me in the middle of Tassie, right, to build a world-class studio better than a $10 million studio wow. in Melbourne with no brain and no idea what the fuck I'm doing. That's how good Did YouTube... you start from nothing then, that studio? Yeah, I bought a Chinese box, double glazed <laughs> box, right? That was soundproof. That yeah. arrived, we dropped that in. And then, um, and then I just, me and Handy Andy, who's like a workman who, like, smart lad, but you know, does flooring yeah. and stuff. Me and Handy Andy did the green screen thing. And then we put an F-stop in and we screwed it all in. It's brilliant. It's just... Now it only does one thing. <laughs> So you couldn't come and do like a fucking show or anything, right? It, it's, it just does one thing. Me standing in various poses, blah, blah, blah. It was built for one thing and it will do that it forever. Does it it yeah. does it at such a level that in London, they're like, wow, this new studio is great. It's just me in the back paddock. That's ice. It, it's, it's quite incredible, right? Yeah. That's, it's not it's a story of our smile because I, no. I don't know what any of it is <laughs> to this day. I have things written on a thing that I don't understand. 4.2, 9.6, AB2, you know. What is an F-stop? I don't know what the fuck <laughs> Somewhere between your rectum and your testicles. Right, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly do the honours? Oh, who do I want to honour? Of all the people out there in the world that I should honour in our profession. <clears throat> look, it, it's definitely a... T but I don't want to be too cliched about it either, right? So who's an unsung hero or heroine of our profession? Ah, uh, they're all pretty well sung. No, I'm going to do it the silent majority. I think we, 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 um, we cack on about these famous people. And there aren't that many of them and they aren't that famous. I think this is about the, the marketers that do a plan and execute it and don't go on Twitter and talk nonsense and just get on with it and have those quiet victories where they grew market share by 12% and put prices up. And that should be who nice. we dedicate. If they don't get in, you know, they don't speak literally on social media. They just do the job, yeah. right? And there's fucking hundreds of thousands of them and they're worth more than <clears throat> us because they do the job, you know, full time, 12 months of the year. The silent majority, not the fascist ones that, you know, want to take over the world and elect Trump again, the proper ones in marketing. Nice.
Cool. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to the silent majority. I agree. Not the fascist ones. Not the fascist ones. Yeah, I'm sure there's a spillover there as well. (laughs) So it was a final call to action. Uh, Everyone heads over to this episode. We'll share links to everything, including the mini NBA, uh, Mark's column, and more. But how else can they get more Mark Ritson? I think that's more than enough. I mean, I I, I do this. Call to action is is a genuine highlight. I I, I love what you do, genuinely, Giles. But... um, I think I'm very worried about being overexposed on pointless podcasts. So this is the exception to that, I hasten to add. But there's more than enough of me out there. And God yeah. knows there's plenty to spread around. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for Been my honour. And to be the 100th, well done, mate. Congratulations mm-hmm. on your century. Real quality, I think. I think it's rare that you're doing... It's a very common category, marketing mm-hmm. podcasts. But you've managed to create dare I say it, a brand here. So well done and congratulations on your century. Hmm. And if I may be so bold, if you can, if you get to your double century, we'll do another one. There we go, there's our incentive. All right, my dad, so we have, so my, my dad has been here throughout, bumbling around in the background, and now he's, thank you. He hasn't finished recording yet, but never mind. No, no, this is good. This is the cameo I wanted. Do I not get any then? Are you just going to give it to him? My dad has wandered over, my dad has wandered over again, given Giles a giant glass of red wine, then fucked off again. It's my fucking wine. Just, he just cracked one of my best wines, gave Giles a big... He, he um, gave Giles a big tumbler of one of my yeah. best wines and then fucked off. After telling me it would taste the same anyway, <laughs> he got his best wine. Nice. Oh, that's great, job. Well done, mate. Well done thank on your you. century. Uh, finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try